<laughs> Maybe you can tell us exactly what it is you do. What is it? I, exactly what I do. Yeah. Um, so I am uh, a professor of natural sciences and humanities at the University of Wyoming. So what I do is I work on uh, at the interface between the natural sciences, the arts and the humanities, in particular, philosophy and um, nonfiction creative writing. There's a lot going on there. So t tell me how tell me how your uh, area of interest has become fixed on on insects. Well, yeah, so I was, uh, well, it goes back to my childhood. I was, uh, as a kid, I actually was, I was fascinated by insects. And um, so I got a degree in biology and pursued a doctorate in entomology. And so that was all very good and exciting and worked for 15 years as an insect ecologist. Um, just fascinated because they are, um, they're just incredible creatures. They're so different than us. Um, in so many ways, they have abilities and powers and capacities that we can't even imagine, as well as some interesting limitations. And after enough years of working with insects, I became more and more interested in sort of sharing uh, what I had learned, my excitement. And so uh, I began to move in the direction of writing for the public um, and became more and more interested in, uh, in philosophy, in particular environmental ethics. Um, natural resource ethics, and of course, controlling insects. There's a, there's a whole lot of issues there, um, and actually, the the whole thing with insects and warfare that goes goes back to when I was a graduate student, and you know, I was just um, trying to look at all the ways in which insects interact with humanity, our, our, our minds, psychology, language, uh, metaphors, and and it turns out warfare. Well, I'm really looking forward to getting into this warfare aspect because this is something I've never heard nor considered before. But before we get there, it might be worth just talking about general cultural attitudes towards insects. I mean, I live in the UK, so it's quite easy to be brave when it comes to insects. But I do know a lot of people who have genuine phobias. My partner, she will screech like there's a home invasion taking place if she sees so much as a bee in the house for instance yeah. now is this this is something that's quite common uh, is this something that we we've evolved is this something behavior we've learned what, what what's the origin of this sort of reaction to insects right so actually i've got another book on on exactly this um it's called the infested mind um and it wait a minute it sits right here so here a little self-promotion right there the, we go uh, the infested mind, mind. The infested mind. And, and so it turns out that it's a combination. Um, evolutionarily, um, I think our, our eyes, our minds, our senses are tuned to insects um, because they, they, uh, uh, they almost always represented um, either a source of food. We were um, uh, and still are in some cultures very dependent upon insects as a food source um, or they represented the possibility of pain. Um, and so I think we're quite attuned to, to insects. And if you watch children, right, out on the playground or whatever, an insect goes by, that really draws their eye. So I think we have a kind of an evolutionary window. Um, and then, of course, historically or, or, you know, in our distant past, um, we learned as children a great deal about which insects were dangerous, which insects were tasty. Um, but as time passed and we now equate insects with with um, mostly with negative features because we've become sort of hyper hygienic right so if you have an insect in the house it's a bad thing and of course 
bed bugs. Nobody likes those. Um, basically, if you're not a butterfly or maybe a ladybird beetle, nobody <laughs> loves you. Uh, yeah. And so culture, I mean, it's a little bit like language, right? So we, we're not born with language, but we're born with a capacity to quickly learn language. I think we're born with a, with a capacity to rapidly learn about insects from our culture. And of course, modern culture has mostly negative messages about insects. And so, um, you know, maybe it's, uh, you know, there's, there's various phobias and whatnot, but there's also a general anxiety about insects on our bodies, insects in our houses, you know, um, insects push our buttons in, in lots of ways. They get in our space. Um, they suck our blood. Um, Rude. They, they do mean things to us and to our food. Um, and so, uh, you know, in, in urban settings, an insect is almost never good news. Yeah. Okay. So there is an adaptive quality there, isn't there, to having a, a healthy fear or awareness, certainly, of, of awareness, insects. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I think I remember I, I went to see a lecture from a gentleman, a Dutch gentleman. I, I struggle to remember his name. It might be Marcel Dick, but I'll have to look that up. He proposed insects as a viable source of protein, a food source, basically. Yeah. His whole argument was that, you know, we, we can't maintain factory farming at the extent we're doing, the huge cost to the environment, how are we going to feed the world, etc. And he made a very good argument and actually handed out samples of insects, which I, I, I tried. And I don't have this ickiness people seem to have about eating insects. But it seems like since I saw that in 2015, this idea of insects as a renewable source of nutrition has created a lot of steam it's already a cultural thing i think in china you it's obviously a commonplace there already where, where do you sit on this uh this idea of perhaps nipping down to the supermarket one day and, and putting uh you know a box of mealworms in with your groceries I, I i it makes a great deal of sense nutritionally and environmentally it doesn't it's going to be a hard sell culturally and so i think i think the paths are first of all you know you don't want to you know you've got the the plate of of ground beef, you don't want to have the plate of, uh, you know, of mealworm beetles right next to it because that has that, <laughs> that ick factor. I think incorporating that protein into foods, you know, into energy bars and into cereals or into flour and whatnot. So we can protein, we can fortify our foods with insects without having the six legs poking up at us from our dinner plate. Um, and the other angle that I've that I found intriguing recently is the idea of mass producing insects, not to feed to humans, but to feed to livestock. And they use them as a livestock food because they're very high protein, very nutritious, lots of fat. And then they turns out to be a wonderful supplement for livestock. And so you, you know, it's, it's really weird, right? So it ought to be ickier to eat in some ways the muscle of an animal that's much like us. But apparently that's more edible. And if the insect is passed through that muscle, we're fine with it. And so um, <laughs> this is the uh, this is the dilemma I have, because I'm a vegetarian. And to me, the idea of like animal carcass is quite icky. Uh, yeah. And I remember I, I can't remember. I'd probably not eaten meat for about seven years when I saw Marcel Dick give this this uh, talk. And I, I sampled a mealworm. I thought I'll try anything once. And I remember eating it. And it was so delicious. It tasted like, I'm not sure if you have this in the States, we call them pork scratchings in the yeah. United Kingdom. It's like right, pork right. rind. Pork rind, pork rind. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. like that. And it was quite, I was I thinking I could get on board with this as, as a cheat mm -hmm. 
for sure. But obviously, it's very difficult to get people from a cultural perspective to to accept that. I mean, it's kind of like suggesting to them maybe when they have. I mean, it's like why we don't eat dogs, I suppose, and uh, Korea Koreans are, are comfortable with it. But I mean, I'm, I think we're getting away from uh, the big topic here, which is warfare, which I've never never considered. I don't know how this is going to link up, but maybe you can tell me what you mean in terms of how how insects might be utilized in, in this manner. Well, I mean, it, it actually does link up in interesting ways, right? So um, uh, insects as weapons um, hook up in kind of three important ways to the reasons why we may have an aversion or a fear or at least pay attention to insects. And one is insects have been used as weapons to simply inflict pain, right? Um, so that's one way of weaponizing them. They've been used to destroy the food source, the crops of, of an enemy. And we're all aware of insects doing damage to our, uh, to the, our gardens or, or to our farms. And then we, you know, insects have been used to transmit pathogens, to spread disease. And again, that's something that, that we're pretty aware of when, you know, a mosquito lands on us. You know, we know that there are diseases that, that are passed through mosquitoes. And so the qualities that we've tapped into as insects as weapons actually link up to some of our cultural and psychological um, reasons for attending to, and perhaps in some cases being anxious or even fearing insects. I mean, mosquitoes are fascinating because I suppose when people ask, you know, about deadly or dangerous creatures, you, you, your mind will instantly go to like the grizzly bear or the, the lion or something like that. But I mean, in terms of what damage can occur to a human being. Mosquitoes are up there, really, aren't they? They are by far the most dangerous animals on Earth in right. terms of in terms of human death. Um, and it's really funny if you go, you know, you go to the national parks in the United States, and they'll have warnings about, you know, don't play around with the grizzly bears, and the bison will run you over, and things like that. But they tend not to have warnings about um, uh, diseases that you may contract if you don't use a mosquito repellent. And so the really potentially dangerous animals in the national parks don't get much press and not many people get eaten by bears and trampled by bison, but that's, that's what everybody hears about. Maybe I can get some advice off you here. Cause I like, I like to frequent Mexico as a, as a vacation uh, destination. I mean, I'm in love with the place and that's the only time I ever encounter mosquitoes. And whenever I'm there, I'm always sold some remedy, potion, wristband, ankle bracelet that will repel mosquitoes. What are we looking for in terms of the science in what will legit legitimately help to repel and then protect you from mosquitoes? Yeah, yeah there's, there's basically, uh, there's two, two chemicals that are used commercially um, and you'll find them in most uh, mosquito repellents, um, you know, that you apply directly to your skin and they're quite effective. All of these other remedies, um, you know, various, uh, you know, citric oils and, and candles and whatnot, the evidence suggests that they're really not very effective. Um, and so, um, you know, the, the commercial products are, are effective. They're safe, especially, you know, if you're just on a, on, a, on a trip and you're not using it every day of your life as a, you know, as a two-year-old or something. Um, you know, the, the potential harm is, is actually far less than, um, you know, than the harm of, of potentially contracting a mosquito-borne disease. So um, I would just stick with, I'm usually not a big advocate of, <laughs> of recommending industrial corporate products, but 
um, they're on to the stuff that works. And so that's where I would go. Ray Deet, J. for example, very effective. Deet, yeah, I think that's what we tend to settle on, uh, mixed results. Um, but Ray J's asked an interesting question. I don't know if this is true, or maybe you can shed some light on it. They've said mosquitoes don't like some people's blood. Why is that? Yeah, well, it. Uh, yeah, there's been, I haven't kept up with all of that work, but it does appear that some people are more attractive than others. Um, and certainly um, light colored clothing is better than dark colored clothing um, because you, you're with dark colored clothing, you set yourself up as a visual contrast. You're easier to find for the mosquito. A lot of it, I think, has to do from the stuff I've read with the, the various chemicals that are expelled when we breathe. Um, a lot of insects, including mosquitoes, um, tend to hone in on carbon dioxide. If you're a blood feeding insect, CO2 is a dinner bell. All right. Another another reason not to go jogging. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Yes, precisely. No heavy breathing either while you're while you're in Mexico <laughs> <laughs> of any sort. Um, uh, but yes, we do. We 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 expel a different set of chemicals depending on the individual. So it's not really the, our blood, you know, your blood versus my blood that they like or dislike. It appears to actually be the sense associated with our bodies that attracts. Um, differentially attracts insects or mosquitoes in particular. Um, once they're there, it appears that they're happy to feed on on more or less whatever they find. Um, okay. So, uh, yeah, so that's, uh, again, that's what basically, you know, a repellent is is a very close order sort of chemical, you know, chemical repellent. It's not, it's not at much of a distance, but what happens is they don't, they don't want to stay long enough to feed. And, and that's the key. Okay, so I mean, moments ago you were you alluded to infamous cases where insects have been weaponized in various ways. What what are some of the most well documented ways this has happened specifically? Carried out by by who for what means? Right. So, without a doubt, the most notorious, best documented cases um, arose with uh, in World War Two uh, with the Japanese. They had a very significant biological warfare program that became the world's history most effective entomological warfare program. Um, it was called Unit 731. Um, and it began with a fellow named General Ishishiro. Um, he was a medical doctor and became convinced that biological weapons would be key to winning um, world, the, the war. Um, and so initially he thought, like maybe most of us thought, that what he wanted to do was mass produce bacteria and then spread those out in the environment and, and the enemy would contract whatever the illness was and they'd get sick. Um, and so that was the initial, the initial effort and it failed disastrously. Um, and it failed basically because um, most microbes don't survive very well in the environment. Um, ultraviolet radiation, desiccation, um, Plus, they, they don't they can't find a host. They just they just lie there and sit around in the air. And so what he came upon was was the use of vectors, insects, because the insects could do various things for his microbes that they couldn't do on their own. First of all, inside the insect, they were protected from desiccation and ultraviolet radiation. So they protected the microbe. Um, in some cases, with some adapted microbes to, to various insects, the microbes would actually amplify within the insect. So they were like a little 
a little incubator, um, which was very advantageous. And then the most important thing is the insect had an interest, if you will, evolutionarily in finding a host and thereby transmitting the pathogen. So the three things the pathogen couldn't do by itself out in the environment that was reproduce, protect itself and find a host is exactly what the insects could do for them. And so his initial program was with bubonic plague. Um, and of course, bubonic plague, as you probably know, is spread by fleas. And so he was able to mass produce um, fleas. Um, basically at the peak, they had something like 5,000 flea breeding machines that were churning out somewhere around 500 million plague infected fleas a year, half a billion fleas a year infected with plague. Initially, they, they, the first thought was, well, fleas need rats to feed them. And so they would, they would basically parachute flea infested rats onto Chinese targets. And that was okay, but you know, hauling along your dinner in the form of a rat is not very efficient. So then they figured out we can dispense with the rats and we'll just put the fleas in these ceramic bomb casings and we'll just have them explode over at, at a low altitude over a target and it will rain down fleas. And that was pretty damn effective. And then they realized that fleas, if you've ever had fleas, are really tough little bastards. And so you don't even need to cushion their landing. They spray them directly out of airplanes over enemy targets. Plague-infected fleas sprayed out of airplanes over enemy targets. Um, and that was that was their first and, and, and in some ways, um, you know, their, one of their most successful programs. They, you know, they launched attacks on something like 20 different Chinese targets and probably in their most successful they, they would initiate plague epidemics, um, killing 20, 30,000 people in the course of, of, of weeks or months. Um, and it was often on, uh, on civilian targets where they wanted to depopulate a portion of the countryside. Two things. Uh, I'm suddenly slightly itchier than I was <laughs> moments ago. Uh, secondly, I mean, is this, I mean, I've never heard of this at all is this something that's well documented is this something that's a suspicion is this, does this fall fall in the realm of conspiracy theory how can we how can we know this no it's absolutely documented it's documented with first-hand testimony witness testimony um uh, uh crime trial test war crime trial testimony um it's it's it is it is absolutely the case that that this happened it's um you know the americans captured um, Shiro Ishii and then actually extracted information from him in exchange for uh, um, uh, not prosecuting him for war crimes. Um, and so, no, it's, it's, uh, it's not a suspicion and it's not a, it's not a conspiracy. That, I mean, that was pretty effective, the use of, of, of fleas. Um, so, but you had another question before I go on. Oh, the worst one was, why are you itchy? That was it, Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so, I'm, I'm, I'm being sincere about that. I have genuinely got slightly yeah. itchy when more we've yeah. spoke about fleas. It's just strange. Yep. yep. Now it's uh, actually, it turns out that that itch, they've done these wonderful experiments where they were the big classroom, auditorium full of people. They'll be given a lecture on some biological thing. And what they'll do is start showing pictures of fleas and ticks. And then they quietly record the number of people who start scratching. And it, it's absolutely real. Um, and actually, if I start scratching, it's there's there's a kind of what they call social contagion. You'll start feeling itchy as well, like a yawn, maybe. 
Yeah, as a matter of fact, now that your listeners are hearing us, it'd be fun to know how many of them have begun feeling kind of a little bit of an itch. A little dry skin, I think. Yeah, let it, let us know in the chat for sure on that. I mean, I imagine something uh, like that attacking the enemy with insects. I mean, that would I would imagine that would be considered a war crime now, would it? Yes, yes. it's It would be a, a violation of the biological weapons treaties. Um, although interesting, those treaties often... Um, speak about microbes and they don't they don't say anything for the most part about insects and there are instances in which we can use insects without you know to destroy crops for example or we don't need the intermediary um or the uh, their vector capabilities but let me just say a quick quick word about the the other system that the japanese used um they they wanted to basically shut down uh, a supply route from um into Western China. And so they thought what what the original idea was, was to dump drums of cholera bacteria into the water systems. Very little effect, right? Because of the dilution. But again, they figured out that, well, the thing with a cholera epidemic or even a bubonic plague epidemic is getting the thing started. Once it's rolling, it's kind of like a wildfire. It becomes self-sustaining, especially cholera. And so what they developed was something called the Yagi bomb. And this was a, a compartmentalized bomb where part of it was a slurry of cholera bacteria and part of it was packed with houseflies. And they would bomb uh, a, a Chinese city and sort of destroy the infrastructure. Um, the first one was in a, in, a, in, in a city called Baoshan in Yunnan province. Um, and they would drop conventional ordnance, and then that would they would follow that up with the Yagi bomb. These would burst open, splatter the flies. They would go out into the city, and of course, flies are flying around, landing on people's you know food and whatnot. And they started a um, a cholera outbreak in that province um, that ended up killing two hundred thousand people. Um, it was so successful they repeated it in an, in in Shandong province. Um, there it was a little twist on it was they first vaccinated. There was a place that was occupied by Japanese troops. So they vaccinated their own troops before dropping the bombs. And there they killed about 210,000 people with the cholera outbreak started by these um, uh, cholera coated flies. So you don't hear about this, but the Chinese killed the Chinese, the Japanese, I'm sorry, the Japanese killed more Chinese with entomological weapons than the Americans killed in Hiroshima and Nagasaki with nuclear weapons. That has just blown my mind. Which is not a defense of dropping atomic bombs. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it is, it, it is a, sort of a, a condemnation of, of how poorly we're taught about, about the war. I mean, that's interesting there. I mean, you, you look at today's modern form of terrorism, I suppose you, you perhaps look at the... Uh, Islamic strain of it, and the 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 methods tend to be explosions, uh, vehicles, things like that. Is there a fear, perhaps, that a, an organized terrorist group may may think insects are the way to go to inflict the most damage? Sure, sure, and and, and you know they, they, it's sometimes called asymmetrical warfare. Um, you know, these biological or unconventional weapons allow um, a nation or 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 non-state actors to have huge impact. Right with very little technological or infrastructural development. Right, so 
in my interviews with people in the field of, of biological warfare, they said, yeah, um, you know, one of the one of the organisms that really worries them is is a, or pathogens is the causative agent of Rift Valley fever. Um, and they said it would be fairly trivial um, to go to an area of Africa, or the Middle East, where there is an outbreak of Rift Valley fever, feed mosquitoes on viremic people or animals, for that matter. Um, and then this this sneaky little virus actually gets transmitted from the mother who fed into her eggs. So you could just allow her to lay eggs. And now those eggs will be infected with, with the virus of Rift Valley fever. Let the eggs dry out. They're very resistant. Put them in a vial, fly over the ocean, land in New York City or land in London, and you've got several thousand mosquito eggs in a tiny little vial. Each of those eggs contains um, an embryo that is infected with Rift Valley fever. Um, that's a realistic and frightening possibility. That brings me to uh, something I hadn't considered before. We've all had experiences going through airports where we're searched, and it's usually for, you know, uh, the potential to have weapons or explosives, uh, sometimes food. And we know bringing in insects can damage, you know, ecosystems of different countries. That's the main reason, uh, rule rather, the main reason they, they prevent it, should I say. Uh, what kind of things do airports have in place to be able to detect any sort of biological you know, entities that you're you're trying to smuggle through. Is this something that they can spot easily? No. Um, basically, what I think we rely on is is um, security infrastructure, right? So um, we we rely on um, you know, in our case, you know, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, or we rely on um, you know the military and, and keeping track of terrorists and whatnot. But in terms of finding. Somebody who's smuggling, you know, um, a, a vial of insect eggs into a country, um, the chances of finding that person, if, you know, what, what we count on is that is that they've been communicating, right, that this isn't just a one-off person. So they're already on a watch list or some sort. That, yeah, that's, that's the key, because finding it um, at that point, um, you know, it's, it's probably too late if you, if you don't have a signal um, prior to that. I'm getting itchy again, Jeff. <laughs> you're, you're, you're responsible. I mean, this might be slightly left field, uh, so feel free to tell me this is not an area of interest or anything you know much about. But something that's been popular in the culture of late is uh, fungus, cordyceps specifically. And this was brought about a while back, BBC documentary about how this fungus had the ability to basically you know, control ants like, like as a parasite. Over, and then this was used as the inspiration for The Last of Us video game, which then became a huge TV show on HBO. And everyone's got this fear of funguses, fungus or fungi. It's fungi, isn't it, all of a sudden? <laughs> uh, and I'm just wondering, is this something you've taken much, uh, you know, have you, you delved into this? Is this landed on your radar in any way? I, I mean, yeah, I, I've kind of followed the story and, and, and it's fascinating. There's a number... My when I was an entomologist actively engaged in research, one of the things I mean, it's kind of interesting because we we speak of biological control, right, as a replacement for insecticides. Right. And we think it's just an unambiguously good thing. But really what it is, is waging biological warfare against insects. Right. Um, and so there was um, there, there's a there's an ins a fungal pathogen of grasshoppers that they were my my organisms of, of interest. There's a fungal pathogen that infects the grasshopper, right? And it it 
causes the grasshopper just before it dies to crawl to the top of a grass stem and then latch on and then die. And then the fungus bursts out and is carried by the wind. And it works very well because it's it, they're, they're doing it from a high point. Why the insect right before dying from this fungus crawls to the top of a high point? Um, but what's interesting is it's been, that phenomenon has been known for a while and it was originally called summit disease because all the grasshoppers in a field would be at the summits. They would all be clinging to the tops of, of grasses. Um, and there, their, their desiccated bodies would have been releasing the fungal spores into the environment. Now, that's not a bad thing if you're a human because the spores didn't infect us. But it's pretty terrifying, I guess, if you're a grasshopper. It's terrifying if you're a human visualizing it, I'll be honest. But I mean, people often tell me and, and point out about how important insects are to the ecosystem and what a delicate balance is struck there. But people will often throw up the example of bees. They, they, they point to complete you know, collapse if we were to lose bees, for instance. How, how much truth is there to this? Is this is this a balance that is on a knife edge? Could this be easily upset? Well, yeah, I mean, there is redundancy, right? So it's not as if every insect species is going to be crucial to the ecological balance of a system. But there are certainly, you know, there are key key organisms. And, you know, pollinators, bees in particular, are, are one of these incredibly important insects in terms of food production. And in fact, they've been um, put forward as a potential target of entomological warfare because there are, for instance, for instance mites that um, infest bees and can wipe out entire bee colonies. And uh, in, in the United States was accused by Cuba during the Cold War of having infested their bee yards with these mites and, and uh, destroyed to a, to a large extent the, the Cuban honey and uh, industry, as well as a number of their pollinators. Now, you know, I think the accusations were flying fast and furious at that time, and there probably isn't much reason to, to put faith on that accusation. But the United States and was certainly involved in the development of entomological weapons, so it's not implausible. Yeah, but bees in that case, I mean, so bees are really interesting. They, they today, we think of them as a potential target of of um, you know of uh, entomological warfare, but they've also been used as weapons, especially in ancient times. Um, there was uh, there was a whole period of probably 500 years in which throwing beehives at one another became a, a, a pretty effective use of, um, of 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 entomology. And here, what what they were doing they they were trying to drive an enemy out of a stronghold, right? And so if you somebody's in a cave or somebody's in a in a fort and you can heave bees beehives over the walls um you know you can do a you know you can do a lot of damage to them and then and then people started raising bees the romans had the in their had built into their castles um these uh they, they used beehives as as weapons but um there was also uh bees inside the castle that then would be used to drop on invaders so use both to repel those who were laying siege and to try to drive those inside of a stronghold out. And, um, you know, if you've ever had a, you know, a, a several hundred angry bees buzzing around it, it could be a pretty effective way of getting your enemy out of, um, you know, out, out of some protected area. It, you know, we've probably been doing this for, I would guess, at least 10,000 years. Um, uh, 
um, using bees and ants and stinging insects to uh, to assault one another. Wow. Yeah, I think that it would be very effective. Quite smart, really, considering. Um, you mentioned something that just flagged up with me there, and the, the idea of you know the American government. I mean, perhaps the CIA. Um, you know, doing things and getting away with things that are unethical. And I suppose one of the big things that the last decade or so was the idea of uh, torture, torturing um, suspects. I think I think they termed it at the time, was it advanced interrogation for waterboarding? <laughs> Perhaps yeah. something like that, which, you know, it was just plain enhanced. old torture. Yeah. Enhanced, right. Okay, that's enhanced. the one. It's been a while. And I was just wondering, I mean, surely uh, if the insects have been considered in that vein as well, is there any way that people have used or considered uh, insects as a valid way to torture people for information? Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> for information and just for just sheer for <laughs> sadistic delight. Yes. Um, <laughs> they, I mean, there's all kinds of, we have fairly well-documented cases, uh, you know, in ancient Persia, um, they, they would bind a victim into a skiff, you know, a, a, a boat and smear them with honey. And then, let the bee, let the wasps and flies have at them. And um, in fact, I mean, it got it got pretty gross. You know, they would uh, the flies would actually lay eggs inside the person's um, anus, mm. and they would begin to infest the body uh, in a most torturous way from the inside. And typically, people it was called um, scaphism. They would they would the technique was they would often die of septic shock. Siberian tribes were known to tie condemned prisoners to trees in the forest and let, um, you know, let the black flies and, and, and mosquitoes have, have at them. There was a, a study that showed that they probably in Arctic environments, a person would receive somewhere around nine to 10,000 bites per minute. If you can imagine that. Um, there's reports of the Apache Indians in the United States having staked um, people to ant mounds, smeared them with honey to attract. But really, the, the best story involves the British, of course. Um, uh, during the uh, 1800s, 1830s, 1840s, um, there was a lot of interest in Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, that region. All right? It was called the Great Game. You know, who could control the trade routes through, through Central Asia? And um, in particular, Bukhara, the, uh, the capital city of, Uz of Uzbekistan, um, was, a, was a place where the British sent an envoy in order to try to convince the, um, uh, the, the, the emir, right, the, uh, the, the emir of Bukhara to ally with them. And they, <laughs> they, sent, they sent a very capable, apparently a very capable military officer who was a terrible, absolutely terrible diplomat and ended up getting himself thrown into prison. And the emir, who um, was an absolute sadist, he was, his, his name was Nasrullah Bahadur Khan. Um, and he was, he was, um, he was notorious for inflicting pain on those who, who, um, who angered him. And he actually had developed a dungeon called the Bug Pit. Um, and he would put his prisoners in there and he had stocked it with very, with, with ticks, but his real coup de grace was to stock it with these insects called assassin bugs. And these are, are fairly large, um, insects that, that pierce 
and uh, the flesh, usually of, of of another insect. But when they're hungry, right, any any sort of flesh will do. And it's been described as being pierced by a hot needle. And so in this darkened pit, if you can imagine, there's all of these insects crawling around and these assassin bugs are biting and, and they, they feed by injecting a proteolytic enzyme into their, into their uh, prey and literally dissolving the flesh so that they can suck out a liquid meal. And so... <laughs> oh, my God. This, these, this prisoner was subjected to that torture. Um, they sent somebody to rescue him, and he was... And uh, that was Captain... Well, he, I think it was Captain Connolly. They sent to uh, Stoddard was the guy they sent first. Then they sent Connolly. He ended up with the same fate. Um, they were both put into the bug pit. Um, and then for two months, it went back and forth trying to negotiate their release. And eventually this emir just beheaded them and declared that he had killed them mercifully, which <laughs> might have might have been true compared to being slowly dissolved alive via um, flesh eating insects so um would it be my that wasn't to get information that was just to inflict agony crike right well so moving away from that as fast as i can possibly (laughs) uh do so it it just occurred to me there we were speaking moments ago about the potential for weaponizing insects for the purposes of transmitting a disease for instance but i would imagine nowadays there's a tactic that would potentially be off the table i mean i suppose if if COVID's taught us anything, it's that borders don't exist anymore when it comes to viruses and pathogens. Something can originate in China, and before we know it, it's a global pandemic. So wouldn't, wouldn't it be a case of shooting yourself in the foot by, you know, unleashing uh, diseased-based insects on your enemies? Well, actually, there, there are kind of two responses to that. One is, in a battlefield situation, um, it might be shooting yourself in the foot, but the, the Japanese, if you remember, they, they used disease, you know, cholera-coated flies against the enemy because they vaccinated their troops before they started the epidemic. And so there you've got a medical differential, so it may still be useful. And if you're a terrorist, non-state uh, actor, you're not really worried about starting global pandemics, right? You're not that, you know, if, if you're willing to go down with the plane, right, if you know, if you're being promised, you know, an eternity in heaven, um, then if you become infected and die, presumably that's not such a such a terrible thing. So I think as a terrorist weapon, there's still for, you know, particularly for the spread of disease, I think there's still particular uh, considerable potential, but also for the, you know, economic warfare, um, the destruction of crops. Um, you know, we've, you know, in, in the last 50 years, we've for instance, in the United States in the 19, late 1980s, we had a real problem emerging with the Mediterranean fruit fly in California. Um, there was, they, they set out these traps. We don't have the Mediterranean fruit fly. And it was, it, if we did, the, the, the embargoes on our, on our fruit exports would be economically devastating, absolutely devastating. They, you know, they talk about, um, you know, perhaps as much as 10, $15 billion in losses if that insect got established in California. So they did find some in California and, the, and they initiated this intensive use of malathion, a, a, a fairly broad spectrum insecticide, um, mostly laced in bait to attract the medflies. But this use of an insecticide widespread, even over urban urban areas, really upset um, the, the, the radical environmentalists. 
And so a group emerged uh, called the Breeders. And it turned out they were eco-terrorists and they sent letters to the government and published them in newspapers saying that if they did not stop, if the government did not stop the use of insecticides, then the breeders, as they called themselves, um, had been producing medflies of their own. Um, and they would, uh, they would expand the, 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 the infestation until it became uncontrollable. And so it was biologic, uh, domestic entomological terrorism. And this, um, this wasn't, I mean, was this an empty threat or was this, this legitimately a tactic they were attempting? It was, I mean, after all was said and done, the analysis favored that it was real, that they really did have this capacity. Um, but it was never entirely clear. They never were able to find the breeders, arrest any of them, find their uh, their production uh, warehouse or wherever they were doing this. But there were some very strange things happening. Um, for instance, um, in their trapping program, they would sometimes or, or somewhat often trap medflies 20 miles from the, the nearest known infestation, which is much farther than would happen naturally. They, they were trapping um, uh, females, um, uh, females with eggs in areas where they weren't trapping any males. And so biologically, there were a number of anomalous findings that suggested a non-natural spread of the infestation. But again, there was never quite the smoking gun. Um, but I would say the evidence would be uh, 60, 40, 70, 30 in favor of, of this domestic bioterrorist cell having had the capacity, at least at some small scale. I, I don't know that they ever had a capacity to do it at a scale that would have been sort of economically devastating. But obviously, um, you know, you, it, it doesn't take a great deal of sophistication to grow insects, to produce them. Um, and so both damage to the agricultural system as well as the spread of disease into um, a civilian population in particular, not so much probably on the battlefield. But, you know, if you're a terrorist, what you, you know, what you want is fear. Um, and we, let's take us all the way back to where we started. What a better way to induce fear than to have people anxious about every time a mosquito lands on them, are they going to contract a deadly disease? Yeah, for sure. I mean, keeping on the topic of mosquitoes, I am aware we've just spoken in detail about the potential to upset an ecosystem by eradicating some form of insect. Uh, given how much damage, carnage, misery mosquitoes are responsible for, if we could develop some sort of magic bullet to completely eradicate them from the planet, would you be comfortable using it? Do you think there would be any kind of uh, ramifications for doing so? <laughs> um, we may have such genetic tools now. Um, it, it appears that um, there may be methods that will, would allow us to completely eradicate certain pests. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't think that I would. I don't think that we know enough to engage in the irreversible eradication of, of, of any species. Um, I once, so when I worked on, on grasshoppers and locusts, I once asked an international meeting, I said, if we could wave a magic wand such that there was a, never another locust outbreak anywhere in the world, right? Now, I'm not saying that we eliminate the locust entirely. It's just that it never reaches outbreak proportions. 
Do we know enough to wave the magic wand? And this was, you know, a group of a couple hundred scientists who who were experts in this field. And there was an awkward silence and then an admission of humility, right? That no, we don't, we just don't know enough to be doing that. So, you know, I, I think there's better ways than eliminating the mosquito entirely, probably better ways of, of avoiding the transmission of disease. I mean, the other well, the other worrisome thing is once, you know, and, and I don't want to sort of make this just a slippery slope argument, but where do we stop? Mm. Right. You know, if we succeed with 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 disease spreading mosquitoes, do we move on to fleas? And then how about cockroaches? And I mean, here's a here's an interesting irony. Um, in the United States, we eliminated the screwworm fly. It was a horrible pest of livestock, literally would get into wounds and just create these dinner plate sized um, ulcers. Right. And so we undertook a program to eradicate the screwworm fly. I won't go into all the detail, but we eradicated no screwworm flies. And that eradication border moved all the way down through Mexico, down to Panama. So that whole area was screwworm fly free. And we celebrated and said, oh, God, we are so good. Um, and then um, there was a study done in the early 2000s by the National Research Council. And they were asked, you know, what are what are possible targets of biological warfare? And they realized that having eliminated a pest created an opportunity for bioterrorism. Because it wouldn't be that hard. As a matter of fact, it would be cheap and easy for a motivated person or, or team of people to reintroduce the screwworm fly. Hi, and of okay. course, you're reintroducing it where it hasn't been found before or it hasn't been found for years. People wouldn't recognize it. They were talking about, you know, hundreds of millions or billions of dollars of losses in order to re-eradicate it. Um, and so weirdly, eradicating the pest can create an opportunity for a bioterrorist. Jeff, I could speak to you about this all day, I feel. And, and I'm so glad we uh, managed to iron out your technical issues because I've learned so much from this conversation. Uh, I'm going to definitely check out your writing as well. Maybe you can tell uh, our audience where they can find your book and, and more information about your work. Oh, yes. Well, I have a website that they can go to, um, you know, just Jeff Lockwood author. We'll, we'll get them there in a jiffy. And we can, I guess, put that on a on a link on your, on your show. They they can uh, they can go there. They can uh, well. I'm sure anybody in the modern world has figured out how to use Amazon. So you can, <laughs> you can just type Lockwood Insect into Amazon, and uh, you can you can get the Infested Mind, which is uh, about why we have such psychologically weird relationships with insects. Six Legged Soldiers. Um, I've got other books about. Uh, there's one called Locust, which is about uh, um, uh, a the, the Rocky Mountain locusts, which actually formed the largest swarms of animal life in human history, and it's gone. It disappeared. And so it's solving the mystery of the disappearance of this incredible insect. Um, so uh, find me on Amazon, find me on my website. And uh, and uh, if, if you want to have some sleepless nights and itchy, itchy afternoons, I guess uh, I, I'm I'm the place to go. Jeff, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. We'll have to have you back on again sometime as well, I think. Thank you so much.
Wonderful. Thank you very much for your time. <laughs> Bye now. Bye.